Welcome to Florida. That is the voice of New York Times bestselling author and award-winning environmental reporter Craig Pittman. My name is Chad Scott, and this is Welcome to Florida. Recently, the uh, Congress of the United States passed this big trillion-plus-dollar Build Back Better infrastructure plan that unfortunately Florida can't take full advantage of because a big component of that bill and that uh, opportunity for funding is for climate change preparation and resiliency of which Florida really doesn't have a good idea what it wants to do. Well, uh, clean energy, that's the problem is, you know, there's money in there for clean energy for, you know, solar and so forth. And we here in Florida, we we don't have a clean energy plan that spells out how we're going to do that. So how can we claim the money if we don't have a clean energy plan? We used to have one uh, when uh, Charlie Crist was the governor. Um, Crist specifically said climate change is a big issue. We should tackle it. He is the only governor who did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when he left office because he was running for Senate, which was probably a big mistake on his part, that his successor, Rick Scott, was not at all interested in climate change or clean energy. And the clean energy plan just went away yeah. and hasn't well, come back. To say he was not interested is uh, giving it the soft. That's an understatement. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, well, on the column, I, I said it, it went away like the hairs on his bald head. So <laughs> it was kind depending of a- on who you asked, he <laughs> forbid the term climate change from even yeah. being uttered in, in state offices. And, you know, without casting Chris as some sort of vanguard in the climate change movement, this was like 2006, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the late 2000s. So, I mean, he was... For was not a the governor, first. not the first, but early. You know, I mean, that yeah. was 14, was 15 of, years ago now. He didn't put the I didn't put this in the column. He's sort of following the lead of Arnold Schwarzenegger in California. He saw that Schwarzenegger was taking on this issue and that it was very popular for him to do that. And so he did it, too. And it was it was a popular move. Um, and then the recession hit and suddenly he forgot all about the environment. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. all about was all about, you know trying to save the economy. Yeah, so. well, we, we talked about that in one of the Everglades issue episodes where the state was going to purchase all of that sugar plantation land south of the Everglades, and that went away because of the, the economic downturn. It's a shame. And, well, it was a mischance. Yeah. Absolutely. But so many of these politicians who claim to be conservationists, forget about the ones like Rick Scott, who don't even claim to be conservationists. But when the going gets tough, the environment and conservation is the first member off the boat, so to speak. I mean, that's the first piece of uh, furniture hurled overboard to try and and stay afloat, which proves that those moves and, and, and Biden's probably the most classic example of this. Anything that comes out of his mouth about the environment or conservation is politically motivated. He has no real conviction towards conservation or the environment. It, it's just politically expedient. Well, I always say when, when the when the people lead, the leaders will follow. And that mm-hmm. we've seen that very clearly in Florida, where once the environment is a popular issue, then you see politicians jumping on it and trying to claim, oh, I'm an yeah. environmentalist too. Yeah. Um, I, I, Governor DeSantis made those claims, made some initial efforts toward that, that early in his administration. And then when his climate change person left after six months he's he's never replaced her Mm -hmm. and he's never done anything to take take on the recommendation she put in her report right and and you in in a recent florida phoenix column talked about how wind power offshore wind is not an answer for florida because we don't have those sort of sustained winds so we're really talking about solar 
in the mm-hmm. sunshine state, which should be of, of abundance. But as you mentioned, I mean, there we're not even. I mean, there's nothing on. We're the doing horizon. better. We're doing better now than we were, but we're still a long way from where we are. In terms, of how are we doing better than we were? Generation or? or yeah, and, and it was just in terms of the number of panels that are out there, and you know, there, for instance, um, uh, there is the the new the new town being built at Babcock Ranch that's supposed to be all solar, and you would think there would be an awful lot more of that than just one place. Yeah. Where we're doing that. Yeah. Um, and and you know, nobody ever talks about it, but energy conservation is a big part of mm-hmm. clean energy as well, but we're not really doing that either. You can read the column floridaphoenix.com, all of uh, Craig's work there. Every Thursday, he's got a new uh, column article that goes up at the Florida Phoenix, which is a great resource uh, for general news across mm-hmm. Florida politics, environment, uh, you name it. This episode of Welcome to Florida brought to you by visitsarasota.com. On last week's episode, Craig, Tim Dorsey, author, told us why Mayaka River State Park is his favorite state park. Folks should go back and, and listen to that. But that's that's not the only state park in uh, Sarasota County for folks who want to get outside and hike and do bird watching. Oscar Shearer State Park, yeah. which yeah. is one of the key habitats for the scrub jay. Now, yeah. when yeah. you've done your scrub jay, is that where you went when you looked? That, you was, found your that was it. That okay. was it. I was doing a scrub jay story and we went out to Oscar Shearer and the ranger we were with called in, a, did, the, did the scrub jay mm. call and the scrub jay came in and landed on my photographer's head <laughs> and she handed me the camera and said take my picture please so when so we got the picture of the scrub jay was it landed on the photographer's head we did an entire <laughs> previous episode on the scrub jay and oscar Shearer state park is a place where you can go still and see them and, and yep. again one of these critical uh habitat islands where uh, the population is being maintained. So visit sarasota.com to learn all about the uh, outdoor activities you can uh, enjoy there. Now is the time temperatures in the 70, oh, 60, oh, and it's yeah. just gorgeous. Visit sarasota.com. This week's guest is of great interest to both uh, Craig and myself, Dr. Jarrett Daniels, who uh, works at the University of Florida. He's a butterfly guy. Yes. The Florida Museum is a, a remarkable resource. It's, it's open to the public a, as an attraction, mm-hmm. one of the greatest collections of butterflies uh, in the world. How did you get a hold of Jarrett? Well, I was doing a story on Shouse the Swallowtail, and, and, which is quite an interesting story. And uh, he's been involved in that. And so we wound up talking about that and talking about other butterflies as well. He is in charge of the He's the curator of lepidoptery there at the at the museum, which means he's in charge of all the butterflies and moths. <laughs> and uh, um, he's just a, he's a really interesting guy, and I think we're going to enjoy our conversation with him. Let's do it. Let me start off by asking you. You know, we all call we we call Florida the land of flowers. We'd be nowhere without pollinators, right? Like like butterflies. That that is correct. Yeah, there wouldn't be uh, the diversity of flowers and other blooming plants out there without pollinators. What is the relationship exactly for folks who are unaware and and for those who, who think they're aware like myself, but probably aren't, how is, how does the relationship between the, the, the flower, the plant and the, and the pollinator work? Flowers, um, you know, really are kind of billboards for pollinating insects. They advertise through color and other rewards such as pollen and nectar. And so insects predominantly are the major group that pollinates flowers, including many crop species in Florida and globally. 
Uh, if you look around the world, over 80% of all flowering plants rely on some animal, predominantly insects, to move pollen from one blossom to another, which generates seed, fruit, uh, gives us the diversity of the flowering plant community, provides food on our table, provides global food security. So really without pollinating insects, we would be um, you know, really uh, up a creek without a paddle. How many species of, of uh, butterflies are there in Florida? Do you, do you have a number? Uh, so about 190 species. Give oh my gosh. A number, that number vacillates a little bit because you know, Florida is a long state. So if you go to the panhandle in North Florida, you get species that are more akin to Northern environments. Uh, and then as you progress Southward, you get closer to the Caribbean and that strong Caribbean influence. So we have the South Florida community, which is more akin to Cuba, Hispaniola, the Bahamas. And we often have many tropical vagrants that come in or temporarily colonize. So it's a fluctuating number, but there are more butterflies in Florida than any other state east of the Mississippi. So it's wow. a great state for butterfly watching, for butterfly gardening, yeah. uh, for just getting out and looking. And that goes hand in hand with the, the different uh, plant uh, ecosystems and, and varieties that the state has as well. When you look at the difference between the uh, panhandle and the keys and the coast and the, the middle of the state, it, one really goes hand in hand. I, I, in the last year or so, have become really involved with the Florida Native Plant Society, my local Ixia chapter in Nassau Duval. Uh, Clay County, uh, Northeast Florida. And, and my interest in native plants really stems from an interest in, in butter, butterflies and, and biodiversity. And, and the, the plants, uh, the, the plant species are the building blocks for those habitats and those numbers and those animals. They, they are. I mean, and, and that's a really great point that the plant diversity and community diversity within Florida drives that insect diversity. So you have so many specialized uh, you know, ecosystems and habitats in Florida and a tremendous variety of vascular plants, which, of course, means more food and more diversity of places and habitats for insects. You mentioned about the, the transients, the, the migrating species. Let me ask you about the, the uh, one of the, I guess, more famous ones, the monarchs that come through and they actually have a festival for them at St. Mark's National Wildlife Refuge, right, when they come through? Yeah, correct. And, and you know, it's arguably the most well-known butterfly in North America. It is also now one that is of conservation concern. Over the last three decades, the eastern population has declined about 80% or more, and the western population is down to less than 1% of historic numbers. So, you know, if you really look at this, nobody would ever have thought 30 years ago that the monarch would be in trouble. And, you know, it's not going to go extinct tomorrow. But what we are potentially losing is that massive annual fall migration, that there, there is a point in theory, if you extend that trend line of decline outward, where that migration is just not going to either happen with certainly the robustness that it does, or it could really disappear. Uh, and that would, of course, be a travesty. And Florida's a unique beast in this because we, we have sort of three different groups of monarchs, if you will, in, in Florida. Really? We, have, we have a migrating you know, population that comes through Peninsular and the Panhandle of Florida and migrates through St. Mark's where the annual monarch festival occurs. Uh, we also have the only non-migratory population no in South Florida, in Miami-Dade County. And then increasingly because of both climate change and 
the use of tropical milkweed, which is a non-native milkweed and doesn't die back or senesce like the other plants, we have sort of winter breeding of monarchs. So we have this hmm. convoluted mess, if you will, of three different sort of groups of monarchs kind of cohabitating uh, at any given time in the state of Florida. Well, to, to, to use a, a poor pun, we're getting right into the weeds of it here. We're, there, we're, <laughs> we're diving right in. Tropical milkweed, the collapse of the monarch. These are all uh, topics I wanted to, to bring up. And, and Craig brought us uh, right into the belly of the beast here. And it, it's interesting when we think about uh, the global extinction crisis, when we think about biodiversity collapse, like you say, 30 years in the lifetime of most people on the planet in, in Florida, uh, an 80% decline in the monarch numbers. And out West, it's worse. Like you say, a 99% loss of monarch butterfly numbers. And the monarch is the butterfly. I mean, it is the uh, super iconic, you know, if you're going to do a butterfly mural, a butterfly license plate, a butterfly poster, it's going to be the monarch. So if we get right down to it in that short amount of time, why have the numbers gone down so dramatically? Well, I think it's the same for most species generally, right? It's the loss of habitat uh, as the main driver. And then coupled with that, either synergistically or, you know, in addition to, you have a whole bunch of other perturbations, all of which are result of humans on this planet. You know, light pollution, overuse of agricultural insecticides, climate change, um, you know, all these other things that kind of interact. And then as you dwindle down in lower and lower numbers, you, you have the lack of resilience or the loss of resilience of these populations where they just, now they don't have the numbers to be able to handle additional challenges that come up, you know, and that, that's a, a really good example, like from South Florida, where we have these super rare species that are listed under the Endangered Species Act that are down to, you know, at, at certain, for certain species, you know, really, really small mm -hmm. populations and numbers. And historically, they might have had a, a much wider range or a network of populations. And now all the eggs are literally in one basket. So they don't have the ability to handle those additional changes, whether it yeah. be to species, a tropical storm or hurricane, whatever. Uh, that's a great point. And that's one thing that, that Craig's book on the Florida Panther uh, cattail really strikes home. And as I've learned more about uh, the extinction crisis and, and, and animal populations, you have to think of it as a population. You know, numbers are, are just abstract. But when you think about genetic diversity and having diversity of habitats so that one, you know, housing development, one tropical storm can't wipe out the entire population. You can't, you know, a pocket of isolated animals is no good if they can't extend and breed. And if their future is so precarious that one isolated event can take them away. And that's what we're seeing in increasingly with this habitat fragmentation. And, and we've done an episode on the, the Florida Wildlife Corridor, why that is so important, that room to stretch out and breed and have various populations in various places that aren't, you know, walking that high wire of stability. Yeah, definitely. And I think now, you know, if you look at the state of the planet, um, you know, one other realization is that these natural areas that were put aside for conservation and other uses 
we're seeing decline in those as well. So that's no longer enough to sustain the biodiversity that we feel is valuable. And so now more than ever, all these other landscapes become increasingly important. What you do in your suburban landscape, what we do along roadsides, easements, Mm -hmm. agricultural land to both connect habitat, allow species to have resources, all that now becomes yeah. increasingly important. Especially for something like the butterfly. You know, I'm never getting the Florida panther in my backyard, but uh, <laughs> I have zebra longwing. I have monarchs regularly, Gulf fritillary. Uh, I've got the cloudless sulfur. You know, I get a, a variety of butterflies in my little backyard and it's 50 yards, not, not even maybe 40 by 10 uh, I've got a kind of a side yard that that goes up against a, a, a stormwater area. But, you know, when people ask me, you know, what can I do about climate change? What can I do about the extinction cry? Brother, I don't know much you can do about climate change. I mean, to me, that's more of a, of a governmental industry issue. Uh, biodiversity collapse. You can do something in your backyard, in your neighborhood for insects, for butterflies, for birds. And that ties back into the native plants. And it's, you know, get rid of those ornamental decorative plants from Southeast Asia or Africa or wherever and put in some native milkweed, put in some of those uh, native plants. Learn more about it at your, your Florida Native Plant Society chapter. But there is something real, tangible, actionable people can do today to, to help that biodiversity collapse. Oh, yeah. I think that's a, a really important point that the decisions and the choices that you make or I make in our landscapes and our communities can really have a, a big impact. And like you said, if you do that, even small changes in your landscape, you start seeing the numbers and the diversity of species go up, then you get interested. And then maybe mm-hmm. your neighbor gets interested and it becomes kind of a cascade effect of your whole community coming along with you. And so it takes, it takes a leader, though. It takes somebody to start that chain of action. Yeah. You mentioned about the zebra longwing. That's Florida's official state butterfly, right? What's the what's the status of that butterfly? How's it doing? Uh, y- yes, it is. It is the state butterfly, of Florida. It's it's doing pretty well. It's a it's a subtropical species, so it's found you know throughout Florida. But it it does freeze back if we have a really cold winter and then repopulate northern portions of Florida. Uh, but it's a it's a really interesting species because it's very long lived because it also feeds on pollen as well as nectar. And you can also see really unique behaviors in your yard with that butterfly. If you ever go out in the evening and you have zebra longwings, they, they do form these communal roosts in the evenings on really? moss or branches. Uh, so it's, it's essentially a social butterfly, no pun intended, but it is, <laughs> they, do, they do come together. Uh, and, literally. Uh, yeah. Literally. Yes. And, and they do move around when they, when they feed on blossoms they, they sip nectar, but they also pick up grains of pollen on their proboscis and they'll then pause and amass this big ball of pollen on their proboscis and then secrete digestive enzymes from the tip of their proboscis and extra orally kind of break that down and drink it back up. And that helps uh, provide a, a r- really rich protein source for them for wow. adding to their longevity. Uh, so, you know, li- little, little cool things about your kind of backyard biodiversity is like, you know, you go out and it's almost like a little safari. You can observe all these really wonderful behaviors and interactions right in your backyard. And I think that's the the wonder of doing this is you can really excite your family, your kids, 
uh, you know, to careers in science, to just paying attention to the, the nature around you. And then, you know, what happens from there can be quite marvelous, right? I, I think that that's the whole thing right there is, is it, it, it slows you down. It's an exercise in careful looking. Uh, it, it's almost an exercise in the scientific method with cause and effect, or if I plant this, how long does it take to attract the but? But to, to, to throw all of that away and say, God almighty, are they gorgeous? You see a zebra <laughs> long wing, you see one of those giant yellow swallowtails that's as big as your hand. Uh, it, it's just a, a remarkable example of the beauty of nature and how because uh, humans are essentially the apex everything on this planet, we can choose to either protect these beautiful, delicate uh, insects, which provide us so much, like you were talking about in those uh, pollinating benefits of, of our crops, or we can put up another 7-Eleven. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when you go out into your yard, and I, I go into my yard every single day, and there's there's uh, butterflies in there different throughout uh, out the year. I watch the plants grow. I watch them come in. It, 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 it really gives me a, a, a tremendous value, quality of life, self-care, whatever you want to talk about when you have this little, and again, it's tiny, This, but it's a natural uh, ecosystem and environment. And then I know that my native plants are growing insects. You know, it's a really, it's a great feeling, you know, to have. Well, yeah. And I, I think also, you know, the people, you know, really should understand the value of insects because, you know, beyond being aesthetically pleasing like butterflies, you know, insects in general provide so many key services that enable us to survive, that fuel our economy, everything from the pollination of crops, nutrient recycling, you know, food for other wildlife. If you're a birder and you like Boom. having songbirds in your yard, the bulk of their diet when they have young are insects. So, you know, it all feeds and it's all connected and it all works harmoniously together to to make a world worth living in. Yeah, it's we, the we, circle of life. Is that what attracted you to, to this particular field of study? How did you get started? Uh, that's a great question. So uh, I think if you ask most biologists, they would say, you know, right around the five to seven year old point of, point of time in their life, oh, wow. they either had a unique experience or they met somebody that had some sort of transformational interaction. And so for me, I, I grew up in the country. I was very lucky. My parents had a seven acre yard and uh, I used to go over to my grandfather's house, which was about a mile away. And he had this big silver maple tree and it had these cecropia moth caterpillars on it. And you could actually hear the frass kind of dropping down on the pavement below. And he would bring over these, you know, sausage sized caterpillars to me in a coffee can. And I would rear them oh, up. Man. And when I first saw them emerge from a cocoon, I was that was like the best thing since sliced bread. I was like totally sold. And I knew I wanted to do something with nature and, and I really liked conservation biology. And at that time, insect conservation was sort of still, you know, a, a, an early field. It wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. super popular. And so I, I thought, well, Hey, you know, I love insects. Let's marry the two together, conservation biology and insects. And I've just been very fortunate yeah. in my career to have opportunity to be able to work, you know, as an ecologist. Yeah, so much of, of conservation and understandably is focused on those 
charismatic megafauna, the polar bear, the panda, elephant, uh, Florida panther, but the, the very big, but the very small, I mean, with the building blocks of life, Craig's circle of life, that uh, wonderful <laughs> rendition there. Yeah. I mean, it all, it all, it all ties back to the insect. You know, when you think it, it about does. life on earth and, and probably to bacteria, you know, even, even at a, at a, <laughs> more granular level than that but uh yeah the, this world and, and humanity goes nowhere without insects period yeah and, and i think the other really fun thing or interesting and kind of motivating thing for me is we we work my lab works on a lot of arguably really rare insects that are really poorly known and every time you go out in the field you can discover something sort of new to science and because insects are so are so understudied and even what we know about common species is relatively little, you know, going on iNaturalist, as example, posting pictures, you know, as a community mm -hmm. scientist, you can discover new things, even new species in your own backyard as a, a layperson. That's to me, that's just remarkable. Yeah. I mean, the fact that science and of insects brings everybody along in that kind of coattail, yeah. right? It's like everybody can make a discovery. You're in Gainesville at the University of Florida now. When you were talking about growing up, was that in Florida? Or, and if not, how'd you get here? It, it was not. It was in uh, southeast Wisconsin. So oh, my God. You're kidding. Town, Where? Yeah. Called Cal a small town called Caledonia, which had two taverns. Oh, I'm from uh, Waukesha. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so. Surrounded by cheeseheads. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I, um, I, I went to, I did my undergraduate work in Minnesota, and then mm. I, I looked around at grad schools for uh, sort of insect conservation, and there weren't that many programs out there. And the University of Florida was one that had a number of people working on things, including Lincoln Brower working on monarchs at that time. Oh, wow. So uh, it he's was- He's sort of legendary, isn't he? For, he for he is, yeah, he is uh, kind of the father of of monarch work. And, and, and I also was, I had some interest in tropical biology. So Florida was, you know, a jumping off point for the tropics and- you know, let's face it, growing up in Wisconsin, you know, moving to Florida and be able to work on things year round was pretty appealing, right? It oh, yeah. Here, here, here. Opportunity. So that's that's kind of how I ended up at the University of Florida. And then I, I kind of, my, my tenure at UF has taken kind of an unusual kind of sinuous path where I, I have a strong interest in public outreach and education. So I actually started in the Department of Entomology and then moved to the Florida Museum I took on the role of the head of exhibits and public programs and then moved to the director of the McGuire Center. And, and so I, I've always had my, my one foot a little in sort of the public facing side of science, which I, I really do enjoy. And I think it's critical that we educate the public about why science is important. Talk a little bit about the McGuire Center, because the Butterfly yes. Conservatory there is incredible. Yeah. So the, the McGuire Center is... Um, in the Florida Museum of Natural History in, in uh, the public side. And it has kind of at its cornerstone, the butterfly rainforest, which is a uh, 6,400 square foot living tropical environment with, you know, about a thousand free-flying butterflies from all around the world. It's, it's arguably the most visited attraction in Gainesville. Um, so definitely come and check that out. It's, it's a great, highly immersive environment. And then the rest of McGuire Center highlights the collections, which are moths and butterflies from all around the world. And we have one of the largest and certainly the fastest growing collection globally with 
you know, about 12 million specimens. So it's a it's really a research pinnacle opportunity for researchers around the world to come and use the collections at yeah. the McGuire Center. But you can also see views into all the labs, into the collections. So we try to make public accessible science so that you can see mm-hmm. scientists working. You can see the act of science actually happening. And it's a great way of just highlighting, you know, anybody can be a scientist. We have a very diverse graduate student body, very diverse faculty, a lot of women in science. So a lot of good role models for kids and families to look and, at. And it, and it doesn't creep you out that tourists are looking in at you while you're working. <laughs> it, 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 it does. It's like, it is like working in a fishbowl. And I will say like, you know, most of my lab and the staff that works there, it creeps them out and and kind of makes them feel at e- uh, uneasy for maybe the first twenty minutes, and then they get used to it. <laughs> um, so you know, it's just it's just the work environment. You get used to things very quickly. Yeah, talk I'm, a little I'm, bit about the the collection there too, because I, I was privileged to visit that one time and got to see some enormous moth that was like as bigger than my head in the collection, and also some that were extinct, some that had didn't exist anymore in the wild. Yeah, so the the. The, the, the original vision of the McGuire Center was to unite these collections from all around the world and, and including within Florida that uh, really needed to be, you know, maintained and available to science for the foreseeable future. So uniting them under one umbrella and creating this, you know, penultimate resource mm-hmm. of data and specimens that global researchers can utilize. Um, is really key. And the museum is uh, a, a collections driven institution. We maintain, you know, the library of life of specimens of biodiversity on this planet as a, you know, repository for research current and in the future. But the real benefit is you can look back in time. You could go back into the turn of the century and look at specimens collected then and look how they've changed over time, either morphologically or take you know, genetic material from these specimens and look how individual populations or species have changed over time. So it's, it's really a foundational resource, resource for science. Yeah. I was able to make my first visit to the Florida Museum there in Gainesville earlier in the fall of, of 2021 and was blown away by the entire collection, not just the butterfly collection. But when I went into that area, uh, my jaw dropped. You, you talk about 12 million specimens and the range of color and size and from all over the world. And and it bears repeating, this is the number one research uh, facility for butterflies in the world, the world right there at the University of Florida in Gainesville. And what I appreciated most is is what you were talking about with Craig, those windows uh, (laughs) through the display cases into uh, the laboratories, and you can see the scientists there, and they're you know doing their thing, and and it really gives the collection a contemporary, active field as opposed to just boxes with the wings pinned inside. You, you get the sense that the research is ongoing. This is a story that continues, and again, getting back to kind of a conversation we had had earlier, it can go one of two ways. You know, these populations can sustain and and be uh, maintained for the future, or 
we can have more endangered species go up on the wall, not endangered, but extinct species go up on the wall. And, and your folks and, and the, yeah. the people there doing the research are the ones who are, are trying to make sure that isn't the case. So it's really uh, a, a livelier place than you might think to say nothing of going inside the, the actual uh, butterfly enclosure like, like you talked about. I, I think another point to be made about the collection is that you know, the bulk of the specimens that are in our collection were collected by amateur collectors, you know, out there mm-hmm. that collected specimens throughout their lives. And so that was their vocation or avocation. And they donated those specimens, you know, for the broader scientific benefit. So it's a community of individuals that amass this, you know, world-renowned collection. So I, I just think that's you know, remarkable and fascinating. And it shows that the connectivity of science and how it actually works, that the public sphere and the scientific sphere are not you know, separate. They're they're intricately intricately connected. Real quick, want to remind you that this week's episode of Welcome to Florida is sponsored by VisitSarasota.com. Now, if you're into the butterflies and you want to see them in Sarasota, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to SarasotaButterfly.com. That website lists all the best places in Sarasota County to see butterflies. SarasotaButterfly.com. Butterflies, bird watching, dining, shopping, art museums, the beaches, no shortage of things to do in Sarasota. Visit sarasota.com to plan your next trip. Well, and you guys, you don't just study the butterflies, you actually perform, you've performed some rescues too. Let's talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, tell me about the role you guys played with the, the Shao Swallowtail, for instance. Sure. So, so my lab works on the recovery efforts for a, a lot of declining and federally listed species. And so one of these is Shouse's swallowtail, which is the only federally listed swallowtail. And it's the only federally listed uh, large butterfly in, in South Florida. We have four listed species in Florida that at the federal level, but Shouse's is arguably the most charismatic. And this is a butterfly that was added to the endangered species list in 1976. Uh, it's really reduced in range. Uh, and over the years, we've been breeding and doing research on this butterfly to restore it uh, and kind of recover those populations. But back in 2012, uh, through kind of range-wide surveys, there were only four of these individuals uh, within the South Florida community left in the wild. So this was a perilously close butterfly to going the extinction route, only four left in the wild. And so that triggered this, this whole cascade of opportunity with multiple agencies collaborating. And we brought individuals from the wild back into the captivity at the University of Florida. We bred those individuals. We still have an active breeding program. And over the last several years, we've been releasing individuals back into the environment. And this past year, we reached a kind of a, a pinnacle of about 1,700, 1,700 individuals in the wild this past year. So about a 400-fold increase from 2012 to 1,700 individuals today. So our That's efforts incredible. and the collaborative efforts overall are really helping try to ensure that this butterfly doesn't go extinct. Wow. And you're continuing to, to do captive breeding on those. We, we are, well. and, and with several other species as well, including the Miami Blue. And then we work on a wide range of species across the U.S. We have this large global program funded by the Disney Conservation Fund, the University of Florida is one of only 10 recipients globally to work on both sea turtles 
and butterflies. Uh, and we do recovery planning, research, habitat and species restoration for about 42 different declining species, in, including the monarch. Now, let me ask you about the Miami Blue. You mentioned that. I went to a, a Wildlife Commission meeting several years ago where I have never seen them move this fast to declare something endangered, where the, the report came in, we're about to lose the Miami Blue, we have to take emergency action, and they did. What's the what's the current status of that now? The, the Miami Blue is currently found uh, still only in the wild within the islands of um, the Key West National Wildlife Refuge. So if you... Mm kind of, you know, unpopulated distant islands to the southwest of Key West. Um, and this is a butterfly that really over the last 30 years uh, kind of just declined very quickly, uh, you know, kind of north to south in Florida. Historically, this butterfly was locally common in many areas and then it kind of really dropped off the planet. And we got involved when the butterfly was state listed as endangered and are continuously working on this butterfly. And it's a, it's a challenge because unlike, say, the monarch or Shasta swallowtail, where you can point to like a, a really key driver, like habitat loss being the reason for the decline, the Miami Blue doesn't really have that. Like there is seemingly good habitat out there for this butterfly that the butterfly now no longer occupies. So hmm. it's a bit of a conundrum. Like why is that happening? And we don't have... Hmm all the answers and the challenge of working with things when they're really rare is you don't have a lot of opportunity to do active research on something at that kind of critical stage. So we're trying to piece together the puzzles, the puzzle pieces as we go along. And we, we have been working on sort of looking at how to do reintroduction work better and what kind of leads to successes or leads to failures and learn from those lessons. But it's it's challenging. It's it's conservation work is slow. It's grinding, and it doesn't lead to overnight success. It's it's you're in there for the long haul. Yeah, and and it's the the rub with conservation success, like you say, it's, it's measured in in decades and longer. Whereas failure can be a shopping mall put up in a couple of months or Indeed. a tropical storm that comes through in a weekend, and those populations have to be protected every single day and they can be wiped out once and, and never returned and, and again that is that that precarious uh balance uh, that that you have to to play what's the difference between a butterfly and a moth uh, that's a great question so it's not a simple answer so insects are great in that there's exceptions to the rule all the time with insects <laughs> so the, the 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 key differences generally are and these are generalities is that Butterflies fly during the daytime. Moths tend to fly at night, although there are day-flying moths as well. Butterflies tend to be more brightly colored because they fly during the day. Moths tend to be slightly drabber in color because they fly at night. But as you mentioned, there are some super showy moths and some pretty you know, unattractive butterflies out there as well. But the biggest difference really is in their antennae. So butterflies have long slender antennae with like a bulb at the end or a bulb and a hook. And moths have a diversity of different antennae, some mm. that are just like kind of filiform, like a, a piece of string, some that are broad and feathery, but they don't generally have that kind of bulb at the end, that kind of uh, Q-tip shaped antenna, if you will. Hmm. And you, <laughs> you bring up a, a good point about moths and, and night, and it's something people don't recognize that a lot of pollination occurs at night. 
which it is does. which is one of the reasons why it's so important to turn your lights off. Not only because the the insects you know bang away into the light because they see that as black. Why, why are insects? Maybe here's a okay. We'll back up. Why are moths and, and insects so attracted to lights to begin with? That's a question that's not 100 fully understood. But you know, moths because they don't have the sun to navigate towards. They they often use you know the moon and light in the sky to navigate. So an artificial light sort of messes up their navigation. So it kind of makes them kind of spiral into an artificial light and then they sort of get trapped there. Hmm. Uh, but, but it's a good point that, you know, now an, another major driver of insect loss on the planet is light pollution. Um, you know, that because there've been many studies showing that the diversity of insects in areas that are heavily lit versus darkly lit are vastly different, that we're losing insects in these urban communities primarily because of light pollution. So just like sea turtles, you know, turning your lights off at night, you know, keeping lights focused downward is going to help that nocturnal community of insects, which do do a lot of pollination at night. They, they feed, you know, bats and other organisms. They, you know, munch away on vegetation and their droppings help provide nutrient recycling in the soil. They provide food for other wildlife. So they're not just, you know, something that we shouldn't pay attention to. They're, yeah. they're incredibly important. That light pollution also wreaks havoc on migratory birds. You know, if, if you follow any of these uh, Audubon groups all up and down the East Coast, they have uh, volunteers that walk through the, there's one in Jacksonville near where I live and they pick up dozens of birds every single morning. And, and you think about how heartbreaking that volunteerism is. Wow. And it's the same thing in uh, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, every, you know, that light pollution, those birds are not accustomed to having these big, tall buildings with giant bright lights in them. And uh, they smash into those windows and you can walk around the sidewalks of these major American cities during migration. And all of these beautiful birds are just laying on the sidewalk dead from the collisions. Turn your lights off, people. So, all right. So besides turning our lights off and planting native milkweed, not tropical milkweed, what are some things I can do to make my yard more attractive to, to butterflies and moths? Uh, so obviously, you know, plant native overall, you know, increase the number of native plants in your yard. If you can't do that or you're unwilling to do that, increase the diversity of blooming plants in your yard. There still are some really good non-native, you know, blooming plants out there. And what we found in a number of studies working in suburban landscapes is diversity of plants really matters. The increase in diversity that you have will drive that insect attraction and diversity. The other thing that surprisingly also matters is the evenness of your community within your landscape. And what that means is that instead of taking the kid in the candy store approach, like you go to a nursery and I want to buy one of every mm. 50 species <laughs> of plants that I see because I like that, try to pick like 10 really good species that you like that are really recommended as good for attracting insects and then maximize the number of those plants in your yard, try to create like drifts of color within your landscape. And that has a synergistic impact with kind of diversity. So those two things working together will actually boost the number of insects attracted to your landscape. And I think this is also a good design tenet. It looks better to our eyes. It's functionally just, you know, more aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Is the color important? Uh, not necessarily. So, you know, generally, 
you know, while a lot of books might say bright colors are attractive, insects are attracted to the whole color spectrum. So, you know, you you can kind of be a, you know, a, an artist, just pick a palette mm-hmm. that you like and, you know, go for it. I think that's perfectly fine. Greater yeah. diversity of plant color, you know, the, the form of the blossom, you know, mm-hmm. open blossoms, long tubular blossoms, that matters. And then just plant diversity overall. In the show notes, I will put a variety of links to resources, Florida, Florida Native Plant Society, native plants, uh, pollinator garden ideas, things of this nature, because I, I've taken a great interest in them recently. And there are, like we talked about, you can turn your lights off, uh, plant natives, there are all kinds of levers we can pull, so to speak. And another of those levers for people with the traditional monoculture lawn is to dial back the pesticides to to zero. Talk about the role of pesticides, insecticides, herbicides, all of these uh, toxic chemicals that are necessary to support lawns, uh, not only in in Florida, but around the country. That's a a really great point. And and so we should take the, the role of sort of integrated pest management, you know, sort of taking a more holistic approach to the management of pests in our landscape. And I, I kind of view pesticides as like the nuclear weapons. You want to go there at the last resort. So try mechanical control, you know, snipping off pests when you see them using a, a jet of water or insecticidal soap to control those pest problems. But, you know, insects are going to react negatively to insecticides because insecticides are designed to kill insects. So if you can reduce the frequency and the use of those chemicals in your landscape, it's going to have a net positive benefit on the whole insect community in your yard. And that doesn't mean that your pests are going to skyrocket because what's going to happen is that your beneficial insect populations are going to go up. The, the pests that are, that are the, the insects that are there to control the pests background, their populations are going to increase and that net natural pest control is going to take over. So you want sort of that that kind of even keel landscape where you know you you don't have to kind of break out the nuclear weapons all at one time. You can you know rely on natural pest control. Yeah. You can live in harmony with that uh, within your landscape. And and also as you mentioned about turf grass, you know there are many alternatives to turf in Florida. So reducing the footprint of your lawn would be great. You know, there you could plant other turf grass alternatives, sunshine mimosa, which is a great native, mm-hmm. cranial peanut, you know, other native grasses that you could use. So check out those alternatives. It's going to reduce the amount of watering. You know, it's going to reduce the amount of money you spend in your yard and your diversity is going to go way up. Yeah. Unfortunately, that nuclear option is the first one most people turn turn to. And, and it's the one we've been conditioned to turn to. Uh, Roundup. You know, we see advertisements uh, every day for uh, insecticides, particularly in the spring as people are putting their gardens in and, and putting lawn down. Uh, we, we did a, a previous episode on uh, glyphosate when Craig wrote a column about that. And, you know, that's, you know, my, if I'm king for the day and can wave my magic wand, you know, that stuff is off the shelf by five o'clock this evening. Um, Roundup, and, and people may not realize this, has a disastrous effect on not only the weeds that you want to kill, but 
it, you spray that stuff on your lawn, it gets into the ground, it's carried around by water, it kills insect and butterfly communities and is a key contributor into this uh you know pollinator bee butterfly collapse that that by now i'm sure most people who listen to this podcast and are interested in conservation have have um, become somewhat familiar with yeah i think i think the goal is you know reducing pesticide use when we can and i think the important thing also is the more time you spend out in your landscape you know look around you're going to find those pest problems when they're small and the kind of the, the big tenant for, you know, integrated pest management is that all pest problems start out small. You can catch Mm -hmm. them when they're small, you know, use mechanical control. You can use very selective application of insecticide if you have to, but never spray your entire landscape because that's going to take out all these beneficial insects. It's going to kill the butterfly larvae and the moth larvae you have in your yard. And there's still this tremendous disconnect in the public that, I love monarchs in my yard, but the things munching away in my milkweed, these worm-like creatures are bad, <laughs> but they're going to turn into monarchs. So yeah. you know, oh my gosh. to have that one life stage in order to have the beautiful adults. So well, people really, they, they think that caterpillars are a pest. That's they, they do. That's, that's a common <laughs> reaction we get all the time when we do, you know, outreach programs, even at the Florida museum, it's like they, they'll see larvae in our in my lab and say oh my god i've had those on my citrus tree i never knew they turned into this beautiful giant swallow oh god this <laughs> you know so you know that's that's why we have to get people out looking you know spending time in their yards yeah. making those connections it's so critical nothing makes me happier than when i go into my landscape and i see a leaf that has obviously been chewed on by something <laughs> because then I know that plant is now part of the ecosystem. It, it, yeah. It's food. That plant yeah. is pizza. You know, it's, it's fried <laughs> chicken for someone. And that's that's wonderful. That's why it's out there. And you, you talk about that that disconnect. You, you, it's you, Grubhub you, for a grub. <laughs> you, you got it. You know, that you, you, you say the word insect to someone and the initial reaction is, ew. You say the word bird and it's like, oh. What do you think those birds eat? <laughs> you know, I mean, there there are no birds without the insects to raise their young, and and people don't make that. Can we want to get rid of ants? We want to get rid of mosquitoes. We want to oh bees sting, wasps sting. Yeah. That's the 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 food chain there, pal. Yeah. You're you're <laughs> you're you're taking links out, and and you're not going to have the the painted bunting and the the, the wonderful the yeah songbirds we all love without those uh, insects that that we think are gross. Before we wind this up, I, I just wanted to ask you about something. I, I I finally got to see a ghost orchid. I have never seen a giant mm-hmm. sphinx moth. Tell us about the giant sphinx moth. Uh, so this is a, a large um, kind of... How, how large? Um, it, it has a wingspan, uh, I believe. Actually, I, I don't honestly remember the exact wingspan, but you know, close to eight inches or six, wow. six to eight inches or more. And it has an incredibly long tongue that's adapted to go down into uh, the orchid to sip out the nectar. And so it's a it's a great story of coevolution of how the ghost orchid and the moth have evolved in unison to uh, you know you know kind of utilize one another for both pollination and for that floral reward. And there are many examples of these types of interactions within the the insect world and you know, insects and plants are just this amazing kind of evolutionary arms race of different adjustments they've made over time to, you know, prevent, 
you know, herbivory and then thwart that, you know, <laughs> chemical defense and then create, you know, these specialized, you know, ways of finding floral rewards. And then in the process, pollinating the plant, you know, by the insect coming to that specific blossom. So it's a, it's an amazing interactive uh, opportunity to look at evolution through time, but also see how complex and how unique the natural world really is. Uh, it's just fascinating. Well, and, and just the, 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 the reason I ask is, you know, in tw- nobody knew what pollinated the ghost orchid, our Florida's most famous orchid until I think 2019 when uh, Carlton Ward, who's been a guest on our podcast, put up some motion cameras that captured the giant sphinx moth coming in to, to pollinate that uh, that particular orchid. And it's so it's just that one, if you lose giant sphinx moth, you have lost the ghost orchid, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. And there, there are many, um, there, there are many of those very specialized relationships that if you lose one, you're going to lose the other. Um, and, you know, in the case of, of this moth, which, which has a wingspan, I, I over, I overestimated there. It's about four inches or a little, little larger. So it's not you know, incredibly huge, but it's still a, a really good size moth. But that, that shows that if you lose the moth, you're going to lose the orchid, or if you lose the orchid, you're going to lose the moth. So, you know, the, the, nat- the natural world is, is interconnected on all these levels. And that's why, you know, when people ask, why is the monarch important or why is this one plant important? Y- you know, the, the cascade effect that that has to other species is really critical. And in many cases, we don't know all that information. We don't know what this plant's role fully is or this insect's role fully is. And there's a kind of a well-used analogy, like, you know, biodiversity is sort of like an airplane and it's functional because it has an engine. It has bolts holding seats uh, to the fuselage. It has wings. But if you start removing a bolt here and there, the plane probably can fly. But at what point is that last bolt coming out where everything collapses? And I think that's the, the key point here is that we're, we're, we're hanging by a thread here with the loss of biodiversity. And we really should be scared about the continued loss. And the monarch is a good example that if it can happen to the monarch, our goal should be keeping these common species that are common today, common for the future. Yeah. What's the next monarch coming along? What's the next well, the, yeah, the, yeah, the next monarch was the, the passenger pigeon. You know, you hear people exactly. talk, they, they flew in flocks so big, they'd block out the sun for a half hour. You know, at, at one point there were bison in the hundred million, you know, mm-hmm. and they were hunted down to a couple hundred. So yeah, the, the common doesn't necessarily mean it, it can't go extinct because again, the passenger pigeon at one time was the most numerous bird species in America. And we killed all of them, every single last one. It can happen again. And uh, uh, hopefully with with the efforts of folks like you and the the listeners of this podcast, uh, it will not. Dr. Jarrett Daniels, uh, obviously this is a a, 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 great subject. Something that fascinates Craig and I. We could go on and on and on and on. And uh, uh, we'll uh, let you get back to your day, back to the uh, Florida Museum there. Encourage everyone to visit, uh, make a trip to Gainesville, go to the Florida Museum, uh, take a look at the butterfly collection. You 
will be astonished that this uh, incredible global resource exists right here in Florida. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. That Florida Museum, Craig, uh, in addition to the butterflies, they've got the giant megalodon jaws and, you know, fossil life from, (laughs) uh, you know, going back through the the different uh, geologic eras. Uh, It it is a a fantastic museum. Museum uh, admission is free. It's uh, five bucks something to get into the butterfly area. But uh, what a a great day trip. Well, and people have this image in their heads of a uh, museum is full of dead things. Mm-hmm. And this is the opposite of that. This is, you know, it's not a static thing that you go in and look at and that's it. This is something that's growing and evolving and, and they're doing stuff all the time, doing new stuff all the time. Yeah. Um, one of the things, I, this is not butterfly related, but one of the things I also like with that particular uh, museum is the, uh, the exhibit about flora swamps, flora wetlands mm. that shows mm-hmm. the diversity of life in there, you know, but, like with insects, people hear swamp and they're like, ew, swamp. But, you know, they're they're a, a growing and important, not growing, they're a, a shrinking yeah. but important part of our landscape here. Yeah. And very, very lively. No question. We want to remind folks again that uh, this episode of Welcome to Florida is brought to you by Visit Sarasota. Visit Sarasota.com. We've talked about the state parks and beaches, museums, uh, cultural activities. How about Lido Key and, and St. Armand's? Circle. You've got the soft white sand of Lido Beach and right nearby St. Armand Circle with that outdoor dining, the shopping with the European influences, the mid-century modern architecture. It's a real uh, gem of uh, Florida culture, shopping, dining right there all next to the, the turquoise waters of the Gulf. And hey, how about this? We, sh- we should, you're, you're a baseball fan, Craig, uh, the yep. folks that visit Sarasota want to congratulate the Atlanta Braves who have their spring training <laughs> uh, there in, in Sarasota, of course, on the World Series victory. Braves and Orioles both uh, host their spring training there in Sarasota County. And my <laughs> father-in-law is a big Braves fan, baseball fan. He's already looking at that calendar for spring training. It'll, it'll <laughs> be he here is. before you know it. <laughs> visit Sarasota.com. And Sarasota, of course, they've got... Uh, Butterflies as, as well, all through Mayaka River State oh, Park sure. and, and everywhere you look down. There. And it's again, we, we talk so much about the, the big, the manatees, the panthers, uh, even the, the scrub jay. But, you know, those the butterflies, the small, the, the insects, oh, yeah. it's, there are so many great places in this, this state. Well, Selby state- Gardens. Selby Gardens has lots of butterflies because Absolutely. they have lots of flowers. Because yeah. they've, got, they've got so many flowers and it's, you know, they... They're just so incredibly beautiful and, and, and they're precarious, you know, and again, it's another one of those things like, man, what would life be like without monarch butterflies? Yeah. I mean, yeah. think. I hope uh, we don't, ha- I don't, we have to, don't ever find out. Agreed. Welcome to Florida. Welcome to Florida. <laughs>